News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here, hour number three. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110, and the email is Pete at the thepetecallendershow.com. Uh, all righty, so um, I guess we, we usually have Matt Harris on uh, every day at 2, and I'm um, not sure, uh, I don't know, Bernie gave him a call or whatever, but he's not answering, but I'm not sure if he's actually down in the uh, in court. I know they're coming back into, uh, they're coming back in session. The lunch break is over at 2.20, so that may close the window here for him if he's down there. Uh, but he's, you know, he and his uh, co-host of the podcast, uh, Seton Tucker, they've been doing the Impact of Influence podcast about the Alec Murdoch uh, saga. I mean, all of it. They're up to like a hundred and something episodes now. So if you're interested in this story, you can uh, get that free uh, podcast. And they, they go over the boat case. They go over the was uh, Sam Smith or Stephen Smith. They go over uh, the Satterfield component, all these different, uh, the, the shooting on the side of the road, all of this. I have been focusing just on sort of the evidence that is being presented in court. And right now, the state has been making its case, and they've been doing so for, I think it's now 16 days, I want to say. And uh, so, obviously, we are seeing stuff from the state perspective, right? It's all coming from the state's perspective. Um, We will get the defense's perspective uh, once they begin their, uh, their part. Okay, we got Matt here. Let's bring him on. Hello, Matt. How I are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. good. How are you? I'm good. Are you down in Charleston? Or are you down at the uh, the courthouse? I should say. No, I'm leaving tomorrow. You're leaving tomorrow. Okay. So, um, so first off, let's start with Maggie's sister, Maggie Murdoch's sister. She took the stand yesterday. Uh, what were the big developments out of her testimony, in your opinion? Well, again, it's it's just building the case as they say, brick by brick, of the fact that he really wanted her to come to Moselle. They don't think that's a big burger, a teen burger, um, that she was planning on going back to Edisto. Uh, she thought differently of Alec after the Labor Day suicide for hire thing, and then they fought over whether that should be admitted. She also said she found it weird that he said right after the murders, that he was going to make sure that uh, Paul was not held responsible for the boat crash. And she thought that was weird because she didn't say, he didn't say, I want to find the killers. She also said he didn't seem nervous at all that there might be people out there targeting the Murdoch family. She said her and her mom and dad were nervous, and she thought that Buster and Alex should have had even, uh, like, some sort of security or been careful because maybe they were, and, and, and Alec wasn't acting like that at all. He was about, you know, getting Paul out of the uh, the boat crash, which is weird because at this point he's murdered, but who knows? You know, guy, Well, he wanted to clear his name. I'm going to, uh, it's my number one priority. I'm going to yeah, clear his name. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that struck her as very odd. Uh I, I don't think there was, like, if I'm in the jury, I don't think there's anything there that made me say, well, no wonder he killed both of them. And I mean, there, there was, again, just a little, few little uh, things here and there, but other than the acting weird part, I, I didn't see anything huge there. Right. So uh, to circle back on one thing, uh, you said that uh, the, the sister, 
uh, Proctor, I think is her last name, right? She says that Maggie uh, did not want to go to this the hunting property called Moselle. She did not want to go there that night, but her sister convinced her to go because Alex's father was doing poorly in the hospital, right. and that um, and that he was going to go see his mom, which. Right. Right, and so this is part of it, and and that he then, in in subsequent testimony that comes out today, right, from the right. investigator, that he's telling law enforcement that the reason uh, that Maggie came was because she was going to go with him, yet right. he went to his mom's without her. So, yeah, why the why is there a discrepancy there if she came all the way up to Moselle? Because your dad wasn't doing well and you were going to go see your mom and you told the investigators that that's why she was there was to support you and go with you to mom. But then you didn't take her with you and you tried to call her and you didn't ride past the kennels to see, hey, are you coming? Nothing like that. And let's remember those kennels, assuming the lights are on, uh, are like the massive lights. Yeah. You, You see it from the house. And so why wouldn't you buzz by and say, hey, you want to go with me to dad's house? Right. Uh, you, you said he went out with where the, uh, the brick entrance is. Uh, but you could see the dog kennels and the lights from the house. So it makes no sense. All right. So next up, I mentioned this. Uh, this is the sled investigator. He was the, the lead investigator. His name, uh, name is David Owen. And um, it is becoming pretty clear that... Um, the timeline that Alec offered is not accurate. Now, you could say that's because he was, you know, uh, really distraught the night of the murder. And he's saying a half, uh, he said, oh, you know, I, I was away uh, for like an hour and a half, two hours ago. That's how long I was gone. But actually, he was only gone for like an hour or whatever. So like, you could right. say that that was just, you know, in the heat of the moment kind of thing. But they're playing a video. They played a video of uh, the third interview, I guess, that he gave to SLED. Yep. And first right, and Sled tells him we have a video of you wearing these clothes, and that was the first time Alec learned of the that the existence of that video, right? Right, right. He did not know that existed. He kind of like was like, "Hey, uh, well, I probably changed my clothes." And he kept kind of delaying and hemming and hawing. It's like oh, I guess I must have changed them after dinner or something, uh, you know. And uh, he, he, but he did know apparently at least a little bit about the kennel video because uh, the kid whose dog was being videoed said that told Alec at one point, Hey, I heard your voice down at the kennel, but he still didn't change the story. Right. He's just, yeah, he's like, he's clinging to the story. Like at first when he's asked, you were in this video next to the trees and you're wearing long pants and a collared shirt and some loafers and which, by the way, that outfit, his housekeeper, who does his, has done his laundry for years, says she's never seen that outfit again. And uh, he, they say, so you're wearing something different when we showed up. When did you change? And he has a hard time figuring that out. Now, yeah. that, now that's not something like he couldn't it, like he was trying to, re- quote, remember, did he get changed before dinner or after dinner? And you could tell now he's starting, and maybe he's innocent, and he's just starting to worry that now I'm a suspect and I need to get come up with the right answer. Yes, I, I because he seemed baffled by that. They even say, you no, know, everybody was sure it was your voice, and you have a very new voice. Do you know anybody else that has a voice like yours? Right. And he's like, uh, no, I don't think so. Um, but I don't, 
understand, I still don't understand how they're going to get out of this timeline thing. That's the biggest, biggest thing. For the defense? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I I think all you could do is to try to, I think you would probably try to uh, convince at least one juror, that's all you need, uh, is to say that it is unreasonable to believe that Alec must have done all of this stuff um, within a very short period of time. 16 minutes. Right. And then to be on the phone with his friend who doesn't detect any kind of, you know, uh, strain in his voice or anything else. I mean, you think about like you're huffing and puffing, you're running around, you're trying to ditch cars and phones and all this stuff. And, and you got rid of all the evidence and then you get on the road and and then you're on the phone with all these different people and nobody can detect that you have any kind of an elevated blood pressure or something. How, right. how does he do that? You know, how did that happen? Well, and um, what, I just a quick thing. I talked to uh, just talked to an insider. Oh, um, who told me that there uh, two things. One, and Harpootlian kind of mentioned it at the beginning of the trial, but they're pretty sure they're going to take the jury out to Moselle. Mm. Uh, and the other thing is they, you know, have these, as you would expect, these high-priced people that have come in and do a total reenactment of how the shooting could have happened. Ooh. Uh, that is pretty darn huge. Um I knew that they had big plans and put some money into experts and stuff, but uh, to actually do a full reenactment uh, and possibly at Moselle, that would be interesting. Yes. Yes, to say the least. And I think they have to, the prosecutors have to do something in order to breathe life into this timeline. You got all this data and it's all fantastic, but if you don't, if you can't visualize everything that's happening, it's data overload and and the message gets lost. Yeah. It's data overload. It's DNA overload. It's blood overload. It's how many times did he change his clothes? When, where, how? You got to make it real linear, I think. Very, very down to the minute of everything he was doing. Right. And and where he was and, and uh, really, really break it down because now you just know there's 16 minutes basically from the time they think that they were shot until he calls 911, or not until he calls 911, until he leaves uh, to go to his mom's house. And we know that from the car data where it starts up. Yeah. Right. But and, there's other vehicles, there's vehicles all over the damn place at that place, at that, on that farm he could have driven. Right, but we well, but we know that he drove his suburban right, right. All, all the way to his mom's house. So we know that oh, that yeah, trip yeah, yeah. occurred. Yeah, we know that trip occurred. The question is, uh, you know, did he have enough time to do all of the things he's alleged to have done? And I think the uh, all the um, all the defense I think has to do is just throw out the idea that there was a second shooter and 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 yep. construct an idea that there was a second shooter, even if that second shooter was there with Alec. Right? Like, you don't even have to say that he wasn't even a part of it. You don't even have to make that case. All you got to do is say there was a second shooter. Maybe they did it. That's it. Yeah, yeah, because you have to – both murders are tied together in the charge. Uh, so Alec could be one of the shooters. He doesn't even have to say it wasn't. Yeah. Just, like, how could you possibly shoot these people so close together in this time frame, this distance, and all that? A guy who loved his son and wife, and he's going to circle her and shoot her twice in the back of the head? Right. Yeah, so that's that's the pitch. All right, Matt Harris, morning co-host of the Matt Ramona Show, also co-host of the podcast Impact of Influence, available on all major podcasting platforms. You can check him out on Court TV every night too. I appreciate it, Matt. Thank you, sir. Thanks, brother. All Thanks, right, man. Dude. Enjoy your trip down to the Murdoch trial. All right, so the the state is wrapping up its case, winding it down. Generally speaking, 
we should, in, you know, you, you should always expect the strongest witnesses to kind of be the last ones. So they're freshest in the minds of the jury. And so they brought onto the stand yesterday the sister of Maggie Murdoch. Her name is Marion Proctor. They had her on the stand. Um, and then, and by the way, the Proctor family, that whole side of the family, Maggie's side of the family, they they have not done any interviews. They've They've not expressed any opinions one way or the other about anything. So this was sort of like the first glimpse into what they must be thinking through all of this. Because that's a very natural thing for everybody to think. Like, could you imagine, like, what that relationship is like now between Alec and his in-laws? Because they're charged with the murder of their family member, right? And and he's saying he didn't do it. So what do you do? Do you support him? Do you stand by him? You need to know the evidence, too. But you start learning some evidence. You start asking him questions. Now you're going to get called to testify as well. So it's a tricky line to walk there. So a couple things, uh, that, so that as I was talking with Matt Harris there about the timeline, we'll come back to, because the timeline, uh, to me, is not working for the defense right now. Now, maybe they're going to be able to shoot enough holes in it, uh, and, you know, when they get up to make their arguments, fine, but um, we'll see. We'll see, because right now, all right, so here's a couple things. She said, or uh, uh, Marion Proctor said that, Maggie only went to this Moselle hunting property. They call it Moselle. They, she only went there because Alec had asked her to go, and Maggie had talked with her sister, Marion. And this is also corroborated by the housekeeper and friend, uh, Blanca Turbiate Simpson, who said that Maggie Murdoch didn't seem like she wanted to leave her home in Edisto Beach. And that's where she generally preferred to stay. She she didn't like hanging out up at the Moselle property because uh, it wasn't the beach. It it was buggy. There were feral hogs running all around. She liked the dogs and everything, but it wasn't that it wasn't her playground. She liked being at the beach. Um sled lead investigator David Owen, Alec Murdoch, and Maggie Murdoch. Uh, or sorry, Alec Murdoch said that Maggie came home on June 7th because she was worried about Alec Murdoch and his father. This is what Alec told the sled investigator, that Maggie came home the, the day she was murdered because she was worried about Alec and his father. Why? Well, the same day, the same day, remember from the testimony from the financial people a couple weeks ago uh, or, or uh, last week, that was the day that he was confronted by somebody in his law firm about the missing $750,000, whatever it was. The same day that the chief financial officer says, what's going on with this? As she's confronting him, he gets a call from the hospital. Dad's in the hospital. And so she stops talking with him about it. And then he keeps working, though. And she said that was odd. She thought that he, was, he would have taken off, but he didn't. He stayed there that day. He stayed at work. Meanwhile, you have this conversation between Maggie and her sister, and her sister's like, you know, I know you don't like going up there to Moselle so much, but Alec's dad's sick, and, you know, you should go and you should uh, be there to support Alec. And this is what Alec said as well to the sled officer. 
the lead investigator. But if that's the case, why didn't he ask her to go to see mom? Why would you just invite her up there, eat some dinner that you had Blanca make for you, and the dinner only lasted, according to the interview with Sled, the dinner only lasted, he said, no, you know, normal amount of time, 10, 15 minutes. He then falls asleep on the couch, he says, wakes up, calls Maggie. She doesn't answer, so he gets in his car, he takes off. But she's already dead. So he didn't hear the gunshots, all the gunfire right outside the house. He didn't hear that while he, right? This is why that video of him at the kennels is so damning is because it puts him at the kennels at a time where he supposedly was not there. And this is what he kept saying. He kept telling them this. So he was on the third interview with Sled. They bring him down to the station and they got the video rolling on him. So that's what they're playing for the court uh, or have been all this afternoon. They've been playing his interview almost in its entirety. And you can see where he learns about the the tree video and he kind of he kind of just stops and he's he's really thinking through his answer and again maybe that's because he's like he's a lawyer and so he thinks oh my gosh they got me on some inconsistency oh my gosh I'm a suspect oh my gosh oh my gosh and he's freaking out they say when did you change clothes and he says oh, I'm I, yeah, I, I'm not sure what, well, what time was that video? That's what he asks him. What time was the video? Why would you ask that? Why would you ask what time the video is? It's got nothing to do with what time you changed your shirt or your clothes, right? You only ask that question if you don't know the answer that needs to fit, right? Because if, you, if he says, when did you change your clothes? And up until now, you just simply forgot when you changed them ever to mention that. But then when asked... And now this is a pretty important piece of information. You're like, okay, well, let me see here. Go back in my mind's eye. Uh, we had the dinner. And then uh, after dinner, I fell asleep on the couch. And then I woke up on the couch. And then I got in the car and I left. And right. So, oh, well, when was the video? When do I need to say that video was? That's not, you would just say, oh, I, okay, yes. I, yeah, I changed before I laid down on the couch. Or, oh, yeah, I remember, I, I woke up, and then I changed, and I got in the car, and I left. Or, oh, that's right, I was walking around the property, and then I, uh, I well, before dinner, I changed before dinner because I got sweaty. Like, you would that would remind you when you changed. But he couldn't remember in his timeline where to insert the changing of the clothing. And that's, to me, it's not so much the time. It's, you don't remember the, the, the you don't remember the, the landmark, Right? The landmark is dinner. The landmark is leaving. The landmark is looking at trees. The landmark is uh, killing your wife and son. <laughs> like these, are the, right? these are the landmarks along the way. And you don't remember, did you, did you change before that one or after? He couldn't even come up with that. The, uh, and I'm going to do just a little bit more on the Murdoch update here uh, before I uh, cover a couple other things. I think this is... I think this is where the, the state is going to make its most amount of progress, if it can, between the sister and this lead investigator. Because the lead investigator, right, is now taking in all of the information that the jury has heard over the last three weeks. And he's now going to construct sort of the theory of the case. That's how this is, right? I think this is what they're building up to in these 
he's highlighting these inconsistencies that led him to believe Alec was the murderer and the only murderer. So he, he, they had done several interviews and talked with Alec several times until finally in an August uh, interview, they call him down to their headquarters and it becomes pretty clear <laughs> to his attorneys, to Alec's attorney, that uh, this isn't simply uh, an opportunity for the investigators to give Alec an update on whether they found, you know, the one-armed man that killed, the, or sorry, whether they found the real killers of Nicole Simpson. No, right. Like, that's, they thought they were going to get an update from them, from SLED. And as SLED lead investigator David Owen starts asking Alec questions, <laughs> the lawyer says, well, all right, hang on a second. Are you asking him, is he a suspect here? And what the investigator says is, look, we start every investigation, you know, we make a circle around the bodies. And obviously anybody who finds the body is in that circle. And what we're trying to do is get that circle uh, narrowed down to just the person who did it, right? Because right now it's huge. And Alec is in the circle because he found the bodies. And we're trying to get him out. So we're asking you all these questions. He starts asking them about timelines. And during the interview... Murdoch says that he visited his mother for 45 minutes to an hour on the night that Maggie and Paul were killed. He pegged it at 45 minutes to an hour. We know that's not the case. We know it for many reasons. We know it because of cell phone data. We know it because of the car data. And we know it because of the um, the caregiver who said that he was only there 20 minutes. But that she, uh, But she also said that Alec had come to her later... And said, you know, I was here like 45 minutes, 30, 45 minutes, right? So he's trying to work the refs. He's trying to to put these little you know, pieces of information. Again, this is the state's argument. I'm not saying I agree with it, but this is what they're this is what they're alleging. In this interview, the sled investigator, David Owen, asks several questions in different ways, saying he's trying to wrap his head around the timeline among the discrepancies is that Owen sought to clarify was why would Alec's brother, Randy, Randy Murdoch, why would Randy say that he saw Alec at the law offices around 6 p.m. that night and that the swipe card data showed Alec Murdoch's card was used to enter the building at 5.30 p.m. because Murdoch had not told investigators whether he had gone back to the office from earlier that morning. So he left that out. He also said he wasn't at the kennels. But there was video of him at the kennels, which blows up his timeline. So he wanted to he wanted to make it seem like he was not there at the house. I don't again like the cell phone data does not support uh, his alibi. If he was trying to say that I was gone all this time, as soon as you pull the cell phone data, you're going to see that's not the case. You pull the car data, you know that's not the case. Now, maybe he thought they wouldn't pull it. Maybe because he was such a high-profile lawyer and his whole, you know, his family ran that whole area and all this. They, could, they had all this corruption, these charges of corruption against them. They thought they could get away with it. I've heard somebody say, um, or I've heard it said that, you know, nobody would touch a Murdoch. Therefore, the only person who would have killed two Murdochs obviously had to be a Murdoch. Somebody who is so insulated from, uh, you know, from justice for themselves so insulated from accountability that of course it had to be one of them. They're the only ones who would think that they could do it and live.
and get away with it. Because the cell phone data would not have proven his alibi if his alibi was that I was I was at mom's for 45 minutes to an hour. And even if you could have gotten that caregiver to testify that you were there that long, the timeline wouldn't have matched. And that video from the kennels wouldn't have matched. And the video of you wearing different clothing doesn't match what you were wearing when they showed up three hours later, two hours later, actually. You're wearing something different. And you can't remember the landmark of when you changed. Before dinner, after dinner, before the nap, after the nap, before the trip to mom's, or, or definitely not afterwards, because that's when you found the bodies. So there's only a couple of possibilities here. And then, by the way, what'd you do with the clothes? I've said this from the beginning, too. When they found the video that shows different clothing, like, you can, you're the defense team. You, you got his clothing? Maybe call up some sled agents, have them show up to the house and go through the house and find those clothes. You could tell them where they are. Unless, of course, they don't exist because somebody got rid of them. Right? And this is why you keep hearing people say, oh, it's a circumstantial case. And that is true. The prosecution has said that it's a circumstantial case. But at some point, the circumstances point to a single conclusion that is more likely, more probable than not. And that's the standard, right? That's the standard. Is this more probably the truth? Can somebody entertain a a reasonable doubt that there's some other explanation that that can check the boxes for every single piece of circumstantial evidence that we have compiled? We put all of these things together and they either point to the unluckiest guy in the world that everything points in his direction or, right, it's, he, he did it. I'm not saying that the state has made that case yet. But there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. Um, Murdoch also told the 911 dispatchers that the last time he saw Maggie and Paul alive were an hour and a half to two hours prior when the call was made. The call was made at 10.06. And so then the investigator says, well, that puts him at Moselle at between 8 to 8.30. But he's on the video at 8.45. I don't find this to be that damning, though, because I could see why in the heat of the moment you're calling 911, you're not going to remember. I don't know how long I was gone, an hour and a half, two hours, whatever. It doesn't matter. Like, it's one of the things, and I'm, I know there's a, there's a reason for it. There's a psychology reason for it, for why 911 dispatchers talk the way they do and ask questions like they do. But some of the most frustrating things I've ever listened to are the phone calls. The things that dispatchers are asking the people on the call, some of it is just, it's, it, it, it baffles me. I don't understand. Why, you're asking me what? what are you, why are you asking me this? And I know there's reasons for it, but this is, the, this is part of the problem. Is that now you're going to have you know, your 911 call being played in your trial. And you're like, I don't know how long. Now, this will be on the defense to bring this out of the investigator. Like, hey, is it possible that he just said hour and a half, two hours? Because, like, he's standing there over the bodies of his of his wife and son? Again, how do you, how do you get from the white-collar crime to the double murder of your wife and kid? How do you make that leap? That's the, that's the challenge that the state is going to have to make, or they're going to have to overcome. And they, they lost a, a key part of it today, too. All right, maybe I'll do Yeah, all right, fine. I'll discuss that in a minute, and then I'll move on. So in the weeks after Maggie and Paul Murdoch were shot to death, their relatives were all terrified 
Maggie's sister testified yesterday that they were worried that whoever it was that shot and killed Maggie and Paul were going to target the rest of the family because there is no other explanation for why they would have been murdered like they were, nothing stolen, right, that they were murdered like they were. And if it was about the boat case, like Alec told the 911 operator, then surely they would be coming for the rest of the family, right? This is what the family thought. Investigators had not made any arrests. They hadn't named any suspects. No motive was clear for it. This was a powerful family. But Alec Murdoch didn't seem very concerned for his own safety. That, according to his sister-in-law, Marion Proctor. And uh, at one point on cross-exam, she was asked by the defense attorney, well, you know, are you aware that he started carrying a gun? And she said, Alec always carried a gun. He always had a gun. He didn't just start carrying a gun after that. He, he always had a pistol with him in his car or whatever. He always had a gun. Um, in the aftermath of the, of the slayings, according to the story at the Post and Courier, Murdoch spoke about wanting to clear Paul's name in that boat case, which stemmed, it was a civil lawsuit from the 2019 boat crash where Paul was allegedly driving, plowed into the bridge, Mallory Beach was killed, and that's what Alec was talking about, clearing Paul's name. But why would you need to clear Paul's name? Alec was actually still alive, and so he's listed on the lawsuit as well. So maybe it's more about clearing his name. I don't know. He also mentioned plans to get his other son, Buster, back into law school after a hiatus. It was just odd, Maggie's sister said. We were sort of living in fear because we thought this horrible person was out there. We were mostly afraid for Alex and Buster, but we didn't know the motive behind the killings. We thought it probably had something to do with the boat case. We thought that up until September, and then things started to change a little bit. And at this point, you've got objections from the defense. Ah, you can't talk about that. What can we talk about? The September, quote-unquote, assassination attempt of Alec Murdoch on the side of the road in September, coincidentally the same day that Alec is confronted by his best friend, Chris Wilson, who had just been told by Alec's law firm that, yeah, we fired Alec because he's been stealing money and he's addicted to drugs. And so because of that, he's fired. Chris Wilson drives to, uh, drives to Alex and says, Hey, where's my money? Basically what's going on? What, what is all this about? Later that day, Chris is on his way home, I believe, driving home, and he hears that Alec has been shot along the side of a road. And so the state wanted that evidence brought in. And the judge, after hearing arguments this morning, did not allow it in. So now you're the jury and you heard this testimony about, uh, about you know, your attitude, your belief of what the, hey, of what the... Um, of what the, sorry, I just was distracted there by the door opening and loud noises. Yes. So the, uh, the jury is, they get to hear um, this testimony that their opinion changed in September, but they never find out why the opinion changed in September. But their opinion changed in September because that's when Alec essentially faked his own assassination, right? That he, he has admitted this. He had his cousin, Eddie, cousin Eddie, 
and there actually is a Griswold in this case, too. She was one of the earlier uh, witnesses uh, who testified. But anyway, uh, Cousin Eddie apparently was recruited to shoot and kill Alec Murdoch. And what Murdoch later told police after first he made up the story about being, you know, targeted on the side of the road when someone came to help him change his flat tire when he's got run flat tires. But whatever, he's trying to change the tire. Somebody shoots him in the back of the head. And uh, then that all falls apart. He goes down to rehab and he admits, I made it all up. I hired Cousin Eddie to do it um, because I wanted Buster to get the life insurance policy. Is that the truth? We don't know. That's not going to come in. They're not going to they're not going to argue any of this in front of the jury. So now the jury is just left with this idea that their opinion changed in September. Now Maybe there's another way to get this in. Maybe the defense opens the door on this at some other point. I don't know. We shall see. All right. I think that's as much of a recap as I can do for you. <laughs> it's, it's been a wild 24 hours in that, in that trial. All right. Well, I'm going to go on home, and I'm going to watch the rest of it today because they're back in session. I will, uh, I will not be here tomorrow or Friday, though. Chad Adams will be filling in for me. Until then, I'll see you on Monday. Don't break anything while I'm gone.